People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down. When you're strange, faces come out of the rain. When you're strange, no one remembers. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, I will be finishing my my look at Charles Brockton Brown's 1799 uh, novel, Arthur Mervyn. Actually, the first half of it was published in 1799. The second half came out uh, a year later. I'll be looking at the final chapters and the final elements of the story in this episode. Um, so the highlight of this novel, as we've talked about in previous episodes, is really this, this image of the yellow fever epidemic that hit Philadelphia in 1793. And Brown builds the story of the maturation of a young man, Arthur Mervyn, around this. And he deals with a lot of different themes in American life. And I'm going to go over those at the end of this episode as, as kind of a conclusion to this, this book. But I want to start giving kind of my overall feelings about this. I, I think this, this novel might be a hard sell for, for some modern readers. I, I think more people would be drawn to a novel like Wieland or either, even the one I'm going to look at next, Edgar Huntley, which really deal more with, they're, they're more gothic. They're, they deal more with supernatural elements and, and bizarre features and, and weird, weird stuff go on in there. Now, weird stuff happens in Arthur Mervyn, but it, it's kind of passing things. And there are creepy scenes, you know, often throughout the story, like uh, when we see Clemenza Lodi holding her dying baby. Of course, the scenes of the yellow fever epidemic. These all have a creep factor, but overall the novel really is about this young man who gets caught up in a life of crime and then is able to escape that, but then he, he has to go on all these quests to make amends for not his crimes, but the crimes that he was associated with. And he, he does the right thing. He goes above and beyond what his moral obligation is, trying to help various people and accomplishing all those things he then focuses on settling down to his life. So. Where we left off in the first part, we've, we've seen him try to help uh, the, some victims of the yellow fever, people who helped him before, so he started sort of paying his debt to this family. Uh, but they all died except for one, 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 one member of the family, Eliza Harding, and Harden. And so he focuses on trying to give her a new life, and he finds a place for her to stay uh, while he goes and does his his other kind of side quest. That's really how the second half of this novel really feels to me. It's just a side quest after side quest. He's just following different clues and just trying to make amends and and you know amends for things he didn't really is not really responsible for. It's it's like um, you know it's kind of like an AA uh, participant you know going and making amends right. But the difference here is he doesn't really have to do it. It's something he does, and it shows that he's fundamentally good. It's a very moralistic novel. I think that's one reason maybe people may not like it. And I'm going to deal with some of the morality of the novel today in, in a little bit more detail. But anyways, um, I'm picking up with chapter 14 of part two of Arthur Mervyn, and then I'll just go straight through to the end, and, and I'll, I'll say what happens. Um, it's The notable thing about this last part of the novel is... In chapter 16, the, narr the narration shifts. The narration shifts from being Dr. Stevens hearing the story from Arthur Mervyn's mouth and relating that story. It shifts to being Arthur Mervyn's own account, and he actually starts writing uh, his own 
work and, and he has got a very different style and he even is often talking to his pen and, and urging his pen to move on so he doesn't quite write like Dr. Stevens but it's kind of in a an add-on at the end of the the main story in which we see kind of what happened next to to Arthur Mervyn but he's still kind of fulfilling these obligations he feels he has so in chapter 14 it's kind of a fun chapter this is a really actually kind of a good one and it our impression of Arthur Mervyn is that he's a boy who who had to leave town because leave his home because he couldn't stay, handle his stepmother right um, that's not the full picture we learn in chapter 14 of part two we learn that he actually had a very bad reputation in his hometown and he, he starts to confess where he gets it and what urges this on is dr. Stevens starts to ask him about his father he, he found out some things about his father specifically that his father's like in a debtor prison as well that, that's a common we see that a lot in this novel people thrown into debtors prison and then Mervyn kind of breaks down and starts telling the truth about his his childhood and his youth and things we maybe were hinted at at various times in the story but things he never quite got forward to to confess um, for instance we know his sister was was like raped and murdered by a man named Colvin and we get a little bit more of that story here but not much but mostly this is about his father and his upbringing and again our impression of Arthur Mervyn also was not just that he left because of his stepmother but that he was he's kind of a has a work ethic he's kind of a hard-working guy and he always wanted to go back to the farm you know and, and that's his dream especially in the first half of the novel is to go back to the farm and just be a farmer but we learn here that he has a rep he had a reputation in his hometown of sloth at least in the town, quote, they thought me slothful and curious, destitute of knowledge and of all thirst of knowledge, insolent and profligate. They say that in the treatment of my father, I have been ungrateful and inhumane. I had stolen his property and deserted him in his calamity. Therefore, they hate and revile me. It is well. I love them for these proofs of their discernment and integrity. Their indignation at wrong is the truest test of their virtue. And later on, he says, it is true that I took up the spade and hoe as rarely and for as short a time as possible. I prefer to ramble in the forest and loiter in the hills, perpetually to change the scene, to scrutinize the endless variety of objects, to compare one leaf and pebble with another, to pursue the trains of thought with which the resemblance and differences suggest to inquire what it was that gave them this place structure and form or more agreeable employments than plowing and threshing, end quote. I mean, that's not horrible to be more interested in nature and, and than, than, than agriculture, but it, it does lead to his reputation of being a bit slothful. And the question is here, like, why is he, he idle? And, you know, there's such a focus in this novel on idleness. I mean, that's the huge difference between Mervyn and, and Welbeck, at least from the get-go, is that Mervyn wants to find employment. He wants to find work. He thinks it's going to be in a farm, but he wants to find something. He wants to pay his debts. Welbeck, the villain of the story, you know, doesn't want to do that. In fact, given the choice of, of crime or idleness, he chooses crime, right? Because or or crime or, or idle crime and idleness or work. He chooses crime and idleness, right? He he pursues idleness vigorously, and this is seen as a great moral failing. Um, now that makes sense, I guess, in an 18th or 18th century worldview. But I think this is something, this work ethic burden is something we have to maybe rethink. You know, we got the automation question, and I don't know how far that's going to go. Um, I just saw an episode of the Philip K. Dick TV series called AutoFact, which is about the, obviously, the automated factory. It's a, a good short story. The, the show, well, the show is the show, right? That's not the best adaptations of Dick's works, to say the least. 
but they got that that kind of image of the autofact, right? I think of this this automated uh, factory. It's, it's centralized, right? I think our automated economy will be more decentralized. But you know, we're going to start to see this impact on the labor market, right? At least some people predict that. And in that context, we need to rethink idleness. The work ethic may not serve us because working hard may not be a path to wealth and security and happiness anymore. It, it might just be a path to frustration. Um, like the people who get a college degree and end up working at Starbucks, right? Their, their hard labor, getting a college degree, didn't lead them anywhere, right? Didn't lead them to where they wanted to go. So I, I recently read this book. I got it at the Hangzhou China Public Library. Uh, I can check out four books at a time, so it's not ideal, but I'm able to get books from time to time. They have a decent, they have a respectable English collection at that library. Um, but I found this one, Idleness, a Philosophical Essay by Brian O'Connor, which I guess this isn't the straight up anti-work book. I've read several of the, the more anti-work books. He doesn't actually critique work at all in this book. He, he only talks about idleness, and he's really interested in the philosophical arguments for it or against it throughout history. And so he goes back to... He does a lot with Schilling. He does a lot with Hegel and Hume and, and others. And, and he looks at their critiques of idleness or some of these authors actually praised idleness or had good feelings about idleness for various reasons. And he, he, he just looks at the philosophy of idleness, I guess, is the way to describe the book. Um, he, so he never actually comes to the point where he's like, you know, work sucks. He, like some authors do that. He doesn't. So. What's kind of impressive about this book is he's able to make a case, not really that idleness is good, but that the arguments against idleness are flawed. And he does this without any real reference to the positive or negative characteristics of, of work. So, a good book. I recommend it. It's short. It's kind of philosophical in its approach. So, if you're not familiar, if you, you know, review your philosophy textbook before, maybe picking it up, but... You know, it's kind of marketed to philosophers, I think, but only 150 pages or so worth worth reading. Now, certainly, I think in Brown's time, you know, the question of idleness in this huge continent emptied of Native Americans, thanks to disease, you know, starting to move into the industrial age, the urban age, you know, the the idle. Maybe there was grounds to critique the idle. I don't know. Uh, but this these days and age, maybe we need to learn from the idle a bit more to prepare for a world with without work. So this whole chapter is about him, why he leaves town and things. And it seems to have a lot more to do with his reputation than he originally um, confessed. And so there seems to be some change in Mervyn, or at least in how he presents himself and how he sees himself in this part of the novel compared to the earlier part of the story. He's more honest here, I guess. So chapter 15 then is our final conversation with Mervyn and Dr. Stevens. And they talk about a few things. They basically, it's... So Dr. Stevens sort of gives Mervyn the quests he has to go on for the rest of the story. And there's actually a list of them. I'm not going to say too much about this chapter, but one is uh, Mrs. Wentworth. Mrs. Wentworth was the woman who uh, Wellbeck tried to scam. But the biggest thing that's the, not what's happened that's made her an important figure is she's gotten news that her son or her nephew, sorry, Clavering is alive. Now, Mervyn knows this is not true because he saw him die. In fact, that's, that's how the discussion about this is how they originally uh, made contact. So obviously someone is trying to scam her because the nephew is the heir to her estate. So he has to go and make it clear to her that Clavering is not dead. Uh, the other kind of side quest she has is Clemenza Lodi. She needs a secure place. She needs to get out of that uh, Mrs. 
Villers home of a den of prostitution. Uh, so we got Wentworth. Then there's a final visit to Welbeck. Um, I'm not going to say too much about that except that um, Dr. Stevens was able to acquire like the notes of about 40,000 pounds that actually belonged to one of Watson's associates, Mrs. Maurice, the Maurices. And I think the Mr. Maurice died at this point. So it's just Mrs. Maurice inherits this property and Welbeck still had these 40,000 pounds and before he dies and Welbeck does die in jail and I, I think he kind of dies off screen Mervyn just comes back and they're like oh he died but that leads to this other quest he has which relates to seek out uh, the money for the Maurices and return it to them and then we also have Watson's wife in Baltimore um, he, we know where she is because he wrote her a letter after he plundered Watson Watson's a guy Welbeck killed earlier in the story like in the, I talked about this, I think, in the first episode, maybe. You know, he stole the wallet, and he found a bunch of money in there, but also letters. And the letters gave him an address, and he wrote, he wrote her and gave the money back, but didn't say what happened. Now he's going to go and tell her that your husband, Watson, is dead. So that's how we kind of end things with Dr. Stevens. And from chapter 16 to the end of the novel, it's all from Mervyn's point of view. We're getting Mervyn's um He's actually just writing the rest of his tale himself. Um, I guess, you know, metaphorically, I guess in the story it works because he's kind of coming of age and he's his own man now and he can speak for himself. He doesn't have to speak through Dr. Stevens anymore. That's a good aspect of it. But I think another good aspect, another thing here, just narratively, right? We don't need Dr. Stevens anymore. So Brown is almost forced to change, shift narration because otherwise there'd have to be another thing where like Mervyn would go out he'd come back Dr. Stevens would say oh what happened and then Mervyn would tell a story that's what happened earlier in the novel he didn't want to do that a third time I guess so uh, just shifting the point of view is, is, is also more convenient but I think it works thematically in that we see Mervyn growing up so that's chapter 16 um, and I'll just kind of go through how these plot lines are resolved one thing I've, I've noticed about Brown rereading him both in Wheeland and in this this novel is that he has a real problem with these, you know, not tying up all these plot lines into nice little bows, right? He, this novel has so many characters and so many side characters and so many things going on. You almost would forgive him for just ignoring some of them, right? Some things can remain mysteries, but for Brown, it seems that's not possible. He wants to finish the job. And, you know, I think you can read the first half of this novel and it's a fulfilling novel, right? The second half is a lot of just him finishing the stories of these, these characters. And I don't know, that, that may be one reason I, I hesitate a little bit to recommend this this novel to to everyone, but anyways, the first in chapter sixteen he goes to the apartment of Mrs. Wentworth to tell her his his story and to tell her that that Clavering is actually dead and he he gives a very detailed description. Clavering or Mrs. Wentworth believes her him about it, and then Mervyn shifts to another topic and that is he wants to get help for. Clemenza Lodi, this, and, and he starts to go into these long pleas about her situation and her, her the future of her morality, and and kind of begging Clemenza to take her in and care for her. He's he's desperate for a place to put her. He can get her out of this den of prostitution, he thinks, but you know he has to put her somewhere, and he, he can't afford to support her on her own. I mean, Eliza, he stashed away, but she has a little bit of money. You know, he Mervyn's not rich at this point in the story. So he's got to, 
you know, find a place for her, right? And again, we're, we're reminded of this need for this dependency, women and dependency, something I talked about in the last episode. There's, you know, this idea that the independent woman is not really possible. The independent young woman is not possible. Eliza needs a benefactor. Clemenza needs a benefactor, right? You have these widows, and they're a special case, but a lot of these other women, they seem to need to have someone. Even there's a widow at the end of the story we're going to meet that actually does you know, end up marrying Mervyn. So in that sense, she also joins herself to, to a man. You know, there, there's kind of a discomfort about the single, unattached woman throughout the whole story. So here's some of what he says in his pleas to, to Mrs. Wentworth. My dearest madam, how can you reflect upon the situation without irresistible pity? I see that you are thoroughly aware of her past calamity and her present danger. Do not these urge you to make haste to her relief? Can any lot be more deplorable than hers? Can any state be more perilous? Poverty is not the only evil that oppresses or threatens her. The scorn of the world and her own compunction, the death of the fruit of her heir and, and the witness of her shame are not the worst. She is exposed to the temptations of the profligate. While she remains with Mrs. Villers, her infamy accumulates. Her further debasement is facilitated. Her return to reputation and to virtue is obstructed by new bars. And he goes on like this like for a couple pages, pleading with her. Finally, she, she basically agrees to, to take in Clemenza Lodi. Um, but she wants help to do that. And the person they seek out for help is Mrs. Fieldings. Mrs. Fieldings is actually a friend of, of Mrs. Villers, and it's someone Arthur Mervyn met briefly when he visited the Villar house and, and sought out Clemenza Lodi. She seems to be ignorant of the prostitution aspect of the, what her neighbors are up to, but Mrs. Fielding eventually is recruited, and they visit her in this chapter, and she's recruited to help, help Clemenza Lodi. Lodi helped pay for her upkeep while she stays with Mrs. Wentworth. We also get a bit here about Mrs. Carlton and the fate of, of Carlton, who's, who's languishing in debtor prison. And we get a nice little debate about the virtues of debtor prison. And the argument, of course, is, you know, people can't very well pay off their debts if, if they're in jail. The other argument, and that's the one that seems to be given by Mrs. Carlton from time to time, is, you know, he's his one worst enemy when he's free. So at least if he's in jail, he's not accumulating new debts, and maybe he can learn good habits if he spends some time there. So it's almost like a learning experience. It's kind of like there's a rehabilitative model of debtor's prison, I guess. That's what you might call that. Um, but obviously it's, it seems counterproductive if your goal is to collect those debts to, to put someone in, in jail. So a lot happens in Chapter 16, mostly dealing with Clemenza Lodi's fate. And, and that's dealt with now, so we don't have to think about her anymore. It's like quest completed. It's like in a, a video game. Then he goes off to seek Watson. This is Watson. This is this kind of the second quest. And he just, you know, he has her dress, so he just seeks her out. And I think it's in Baltimore. And he tells her the story of Watson's death. She doesn't know at the time. She, she thinks he might be living. And he says, no, he's dead. And she's happy to know he's dead. And at least to have closure, I mean. She's happy to have that closure. She thanks him. And again, we have Mervyn thinking about this obligation he has. He talks about how he did his part. Quote, I have only waited for this. I have done my part. More information would be useless to her and not to be given by me, at least, in the present audience without embarrassment or peril. I suddenly determined to withdraw, and this, the intention of the company being otherwise engaged, I did without notice. So he just comes in. He goes all the way to Baltimore. He just comes in, gives her the news, and then leaves. So that's it. That quest completed. 
so while he's there, he seeks out uh, the Maurices. And so this is the issue here is like the, the issue of these $40,000, which were found on the body of Watson, but belonged to the Maurices. I think Mr. Maurice was the heir, but he died. So it should go to Mrs. Maurice. And it's in these, these banknotes. So this is kind of the last scam of Welbeck that's uh, going to be redressed. So he finds Mrs. Maurice, tells her the whole story, while also explaining some of Welbeck's crimes. And she takes the money. She, 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 she's happy to take it. And then he meets the brother-in-law of Watson, who's also there, and that is Williams. So in chapter 19, then, Williams goes into this long explanation about how Mervyn is actually due a $1,000 reward because there was an advertised you know, reward for these banknotes if they were ever recovered. And Mervyn didn't seem to know about it. He was ignorant of that, but he just gave the money. And now that the money, instead of holding out for the reward, he just gave her the money. And Williams and this other guys there are two Hemings, the kind of lawyerish folks. And they're like, you know, you really should have pushed for your reward first. And of course, Mervyn didn't know. So they think, they, they think, oh, we want to give Mervyn this reward. He, he deserves it. He's come all this way and he's such a nice guy and you know, he's doing the right thing. He shouldn't be punished for his ignorance. But it seems Maurice is kind of petty and greedy and is not going to give the $1,000. Now that she has the whole forty thousand in her, in her control, so a lot of this is about the covetiveness of 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 Maurice versus Mervyn's generosity, right? And it's, we see this kind of a lot with some of these widows in the in the in the story. Actually, this this is the best example of it, though. Um, not just co not really covetiveness. I mean, that's the wrong word, but a a very hard headedness, right? And this is compared to kind of the. The, the softer minds of the younger women in the story, like Clemenza Lodi and Eliza Hadwin. These, these characters are seen as needing someone to care for them, right? These older widowed women don't always seem to need someone to care for them, right? They're more on their own. And that's reflected in their hard-heartedness and their practical nature. And for, for Maurice, it comes off in her unwillingness to pay the reward now that she has the full money. Now, they agree that basically they're going to have to find a lawyer if, if they're going to want to have this. And it's going to be a long time. The lawyer's going to take half the money. And then this guy Hemming says, well, I still have some of Mr. Maurice's estate. I still have like $1,000 from his estate. I'll just give it to you, right? And then we'll call it even. And, and he does that. And, and then uh, Mervyn's able to leave uh, Baltimore with $1,000. Now, this is... Now, we've been throwing around big sums in this book, 20000 here, 40000 there, but $1,000 in those days is nothing to sneeze at. It was certainly a significant amount of money if Mervyn wanted to you know, get himself started. And, and so he has the nest egg he needs to do various things with his life, get an education, start a business, start a farm, whatever. So he's got options, and, and he's going to pursue them. And that's where we pick up with chapter 20. Finally, finally, after dealing with all these characters' problems and helping them out and returning their money and atoning for Welbeck's crimes, finally, finally, he can actually sit down and think about his own life and his plans for the future. Anyway, so he goes back home uh, to like Philly and the, the, the surrounding areas where most of the novel's been set. And he's got a couple things he still wants to deal with. He, he wants to make sure Clemens is okay, and, and, and that's one reason that he wants to rush back. But he also wants to think about helping his father, 
and should he get his father out of debtor's prison. And here's the conclusion he comes to. Quote, exhortation and example were vain. Nothing but restraint would keep him at a distance from the haunts of brawling and debauchery. The want of money would be no obstacle to prodigality and waste. Credit would be restored to as long as it would answer his demand. When that failed, he would at once more be thrown into a prison. The same means to execrate him would have to be repeated. The money would thus be put into the pockets of the most worthless of mankind. The agent of drunkenness and blasphemy without any permanent advantage to my father, the principal object of my charity. Though unable to fix on any plausible mode of proceeding, I determined at least to discover his present condition. Perhaps something might suggest itself upon the spot suited to my purpose. So, um, so he goes to the debtor prison, and the problem takes care of itself because his father has died. He drunk, drunk, drank himself to death while in debtor's prison. So, no more need to worry about dad. Um, so he can that he can move on with his life that way. Again, Brown just like cleaning up all these loose ends in the story. And then we're left with you know Mervyn's loneliness here. He finally visits Eliza Hadwin and spends some time with her. You know she, she's like his last friend he has, really in this part of the world. Um, chapter twenty one. He starts to pursue his plan for uplift, and and he has a plan to. You know, invest some of his money to to use it to get some of it to get started and and to, you know get his education and all that. We see he starts to associate more and more with Mrs. Fielding, who of course is helping with the upkeep of Clemenza Lodi, and he starts to get. We see she he starts to get feelings for her. Um, this is sometimes after his last meeting with Eliza, and he gets a letter from Eliza, and she writes this very very long letter, pages and pages long, where she complains about how lonely she is and how bored she is and and how no one there you know shares her mind and how she's kind of isolated out there and so she begs him to to basically you know save her from this this horrible boredom she's facing now an interesting aspect of this is that eliza is trying to cultivate herself she's trying to get an education she's trying to move her way up and this is something that mervyn has supported in her in fact one reason he supported her burning her father's will was that she'd get all this property and then she would be then free to pursue uh, an education on her own. Here's what she says in the letter. Then there's nobody here to answer my questions. They never really look into books. They hate books. They think it waste of time to read. Even Peggy, who you say has naturally a strong mind, wonders what I can find to amuse myself in a book. In her playful mood, she's always teasing me to lay it aside. End quote. And you know, that's a sentiment we've seen several characters kind of complain about later on. Like, there's this idea that women don't read and women shouldn't waste their time reading. And it's not something that, that Arthur seems to agree with. He actually does seem to support Eliza's plan for uplift. But after this pleading letter, now Herb Mervyn has to, again, come to the rescue of Eliza, this time freeing her from her, her sort of loneliness. Now, in chapter 22... You know, one plan that comes into his mind is maybe he should just marry Eliza. You know, why not? She's a nice girl. He had feelings for her at one time. You know, they're of similar ages. Eliza's a little bit younger, but, you know, maybe they'll grow to, to love, e love each other. But he seems to already know that he his heart is going somewhere else and that is not really able to commit lifelong to, to Eliza. So he... He instead, he asks her to, he moves her to the house of Mrs. Fielding so she'll be closer to Mervyn, close to him, and where she can get exposed to an education. So his ultimate decision has a lot to do with the fact that the, 
that the the house that she lived in, that Fielding lived on, is full of cultivation and books and, and art and, and things like that. Things that will help Eliza with her, her goal of, of uplift. So we're almost done with the story. Really all that's left is Mervyn falling in, declaring his love for Mrs. Fielding and and deciding to marry her at the end. She's a widow, of course. Um, now we start with the description of Asha Fielding. We get a whole chapter, it's chapter 23 of part two, where we get the whole description of Asha Fielding's background in her life. And she's got a long, interesting story. But one wonders, I think, why at the end of a 400 page novel, when we're nearing the end, do you enter into the background of, of a, a character who's arrived to the story late? You know, she's just appeared in the last few chapters. And Brown feels the need to go into her whole background. Well, the reason is because this is the woman that's going to marry um, Mervyn. The other reason is she really has an interesting backstory. And Field is a Jew. You know, she's a Jewish American. And I think this is the first representation of a Jew, Jewish woman in American literature up to this point. Maybe the first representation of any Jews at all. And it's it's not negative, right? We we've, we'll go back to like my series on... Frank Norris, and we talk about the, the portrayal of Jews in in McTeague, for instance. You know, you don't have that here. The it's a fairly good depiction of them. It's, it's not prejudiced in any way that I can see. Uh, but it's worthy of analysis. If you're interested in that issue of the representation of Jews in literature, go look at chapter 23 here and, and see um, how what, what you think of it. I mean, the core here is that she was widowed. Another interesting, or another interesting aspect of this tale is that she was widowed due to the French Revolution. That her her husband actually had, you know, served in the revolutionary government of France, uh, and eventually was, you know, his name got on the list during the the terror. Quote. She sighed deeply. You were yesterday reading the list of the prescribed under Robespierre. I checked you. I had good reason, but the subject grows too painful. Let us change it. Sometime after, I ventured to renew this topic and discovered that Fielding, under his name of Perrin de Romont, was among the outlawed deputies of last year and had been slain in resisting the officers sent to arrest him. My friend had been informed that his wife, Philippe de Romont, whom she had reason to believe a woman of great merit, had eluded persecution and taken refuge in some part of America. And, and then even Mervyn here sort of makes a joke that, you know, I'll seek her out and I'll find her. I'll leave no nuke unsearched. Um, so, interesting backstory there. Um, and then chapter 24 is all about, it's really a catechism of love. And I don't know how many people actually do this when they fall in love, um, but, but Arthur Mervyn did apparently, where actually you write a catechism and you answer your, a series of questions you know, to find out if you truly love this person. Um, you know, some of these questions are, is there no other whom you love? And who is this model? If you feel, if you love her likeness, why not love herself? Right? And you know, on and on, there's like dozens and dozens of questions he asks himself and then he tries to answer them all surrounding this question of whether he really loves Fielding, Mrs. Fielding, and whether he should... Um, pursue her. And he decides at the end that, yes, he, he does love her. And in chapter 25, he seeks her out in the countryside where she's staying. 
Um, he actually has a dream, though, that, that Fielding comes back and that he's killed in some confrontation with him, and then he, wake, he wakes up. It's like in the last chapter, we finally get this kind of spooky element uh, returning into it, which, which is it's, it's a nice little moment. Um, but he has this dream that Fielding has come back and his heart breaks. But he does seek her out. They meet and they decide to pursue a life together. And, and that's, that's the story. That's the end of, of Arthur Mervyn. So, um, 400 pages of challenging reading. It's, it's, it's fun, though, I think. And there's a lot of characters. There's a lot of side stories and a lot of things to piece together. So it's, it's maybe a bit intimidating for the casual reader. But I think there's a lot of interesting stuff that, that make the novel worthwhile. So that's my overall assessment of it. Still would recommend Wheeland um, for someone just approaching Charles Brockton Brown. But I want to review some of the themes. I, I haven't been doing this so much lately in some of the recent novels. It was something I did a lot earlier in this podcast series. Something I maybe we should get back to rather than just kind of giving my thoughts as they kind of flow through the novel. You know, it's good to be a little disciplined, right? When analyzing these. Or at least not really analyzing, thinking about these stories. Well, what's one? Um, the work ethic. The work ethic is, is big. It comes up throughout the story with many different characters. The, one of the things that really defines Mervyn is his work ethic compared to others. Um, we see that Mervyn's attitude towards work changes over time. He seems to have been a bit of an idler back on the farm but he later on becomes a you know someone seeking out work and you know seeking out a name for himself and employment and he runs into Welbeck who is a criminal and in the opposite of someone who works hard and and this ties kind of into the next theme which is uh, I'll just call like counterfeiting crime and capitalism and Brown seems to have a critique here of the way capitalism is going in this part of American history in that it's the line between capitalism and crime is, is kind of getting fuzzy and we see characters who are engaged in legal practices that are a bit nefarious and then we have Welbeck who's clearly a criminal a forger but I think I don't know if Brown has something in his a bee in his bonnet about paper money because there's a that passage where we learn I think it's Wortley's business involves basically manipulating financial instruments rather than actually trading, right? Trade is good, right? It seems the actual work, but you know, but you in that you only make $10 for every 100 invested. When you can just fool around with financial instruments, you can make much more than that. And so he seems to be commenting on the changing economy as it's becoming more liquid and commercial and currency based. And then this, of course, opens up the door to all this fraudsters and counterfeiters. And I know there's been books written about counterfeiting in, in early American history. It was rather a big problem. Or, you know. So yeah, counterfeit crime and capitalism, something to think about. Um, duty and intentions. This comes up many times, especially in the second half of the novel. Um, but it, it's there kind of in a macro sense in the first part of the novel as well. And that is what matters is the, the intention. What matters is one's duty to, to perform certain acts. But most important is intention. The outcome is less important, right? So in the second half of the novel, you know, he tries his best to help people. And you know, he fails sometimes. Usually he ends up succeeding in most cases. But you know, he, always, he, he tells himself again and again, like, as long as my intentions are good, my act is good. 
right? He's not a consequentialist here. And this is, I think, in a way for him to respond to the things that happened to him in the first half of the novel, because he was involved in a criminal conspiracy. But as long as he can say, it wasn't my intention to do this, that then he can sort of assert his, his independent or his innocence. So um, intention and consequence, I guess, which is more important. Uh, next, we have the role of women in early America. And here, I think there's two big issues. One is, should women be educated? What should be the nature of that education? And the second would be, you know, to what degree do women need other people to care for them? You know, usually men. Um, you know, is there a, is dependency the, the, the fate for women in early America, especially younger women? And it seems in these cases, Arthur Mervyn, you know, can't stand the idea of these women being left alone to their own devices. So he tries to help them out by finding them people to care for them. But they're not always men. And I think that's an interesting aspect of this. He... He sometimes, like with Clemenza, he finds women to help her. So it's, it's not always that. It, I mean, it's not marry off Clemenza, right? Clemenza was violated. She had a baby with another man before. But, you know, maybe there'd be still someone who'd be willing to marry her, right? She seemed not to be unattractive. Um, but, you know, that's not. Instead, he's like tries to find someone to take her in as almost a ward. And they end up being women. So there's a little bit of room here to think of alternatives. And certainly with Eliza, you see the importance of education being pursued and a meaningful education, not just a trite one for vocational kind of a vocational career. Specifically, there's one moment where Mervyn talks about how he hopes that Eliza won't have to just like work all day and she can have time to, to grow her mind or whatever. So there's a whole lot to say here. You could write a whole essay, I think, on the, the role of women in early America, as depicted in, in Arthur Mervyn. Um, of course, we have illness. Uh, the central element in the novel, the notable aspect, is this yellow fever epidemic. And, and I don't know, there's not that much strictly on public health, but, you know, it's maybe something to think about. How was disease looked at? How were, there is, you know, how did people understand how these diseases were spread? Yellow fever is spread by mosquitoes, of course, but... Um, some people seem to believe it was contagious, and, and how did the government respond to it? And then compare the depiction of illness in the novel with how it actually unfolded, in, especially in the, the actual case of the yellow fever epidemic of 1793. Another theme I saw is city versus country and the virtues of both. Uh, Mervyn, much of this is sent, novel sent, set in the city, but Mervyn often dreams of going back to the countryside. Uh, with the women characters, there's a conflict between kind of the boredom of the countryside with the city, uh, which seems more exciting and interesting to someone like Eliza. So there's a lot of tension between the city and the country. And of course, that's a big political debate at this time in American history, you know, between the Jeffersonians and the Madison, or the Jeffersonians and the Hamiltonians, right? The Hamiltonians kind of seeing America as more urban and commercial and industrial, the Jeffersonians pursuing the agrarian ideal. So all this is reflected in the novel. Um, next we have maturation. Uh, this is, of course, the macro theme of the entire story is Mervyn's growing up and, and becoming independent. But there are many other characters who go through that same um, quest. And the real villains of the story, like Philip um, Hadwin, Eliza's uncle, or Welbeck, are petulant and violent and drunkards. And, you know, they, they seem not never to have grown up. 
Tied to that, of course, is independence. I put that as a separate theme, but it's almost the same thing. There seems to be an association between maturation and independence. And that's somewhere Mervyn gets by the end of the story, is to a state of independence. Um, we have a lot in here about debts. Debts. We have debtors' prisons. We have characters who are in debt. We also have characters, so we have monetary debt is a theme, and the need to pay those off those debts, return money to the proper people. But then we also have like moral debts, debts um, to one's family, debts that have like Mervyn's feeling he has to repay his debt to the Hadwins by sending them, uh, by helping them out during the plague and helping to take care for Eliza. Um, and then even debts that have to be paid, but even if the person who inflicted those wrongs is gone or can't pay them, someone should pay them. So we see Mervyn trying to fix Welbeck's crimes, but the universe somehow needs to be balanced and these, these debts have to be repaid. And it, it, both monetarily and, and moral. And pretty much by the end of the novel, it's all cleaned up, right? The, everything is so messy and liquid and, and crazy in the first half of the novel. And that's what you really feel. It's just like everything is messed up and you know, there's all these weird connections. And Brown, to his credit, does kind of clean it all up at the end. We're, we're left kind of without too many questions. Um, that's not the case with Wheeland, by the way. Um, class mobility is a bit of a theme here. We have characters who had money, like Clemenza Lodi, who become poor. I mean, at least her brother had money, but she ended up impoverished. We have Mervyn, who seems to be moving up in society. So there's a degree of class mobility reflected in, in this novel. And that has something to do with the city versus the countryside. This city seems to be a space of social mobility, upward or downward. Um, we got a lot of widows here. Of course, Fielding, the woman that Mervyn ends up marrying, was a widow and, and remarries. I don't know if they ever officially marry in the text of the novel, but it seems they will. We have many other widows in the story as well. Uh, Wentworth and uh, Maurice, Mrs. Watson. So, and they play a major role in the story. I, I don't, you know, it's something to think about in the future. I, I don't, haven't noticed before a novel that had so many prominent widows. And then the law, right? The law comes up a lot in the story. And of course, this is in contrast to Welbeck, who is above the law or against the law, an outlaw, an outlaw. Really, Mervyn wants to be within the law and do everything properly. Um, but the law is also presented here as kind of a burden and onerous thing and something that people can manipulate, like with the Maurice and the, and the, and the, the reward for the $40,000 that she's going to use the letter of the law to try to get out of paying that. And then if Mervyn wants his money, he's going to have to go through lawyers to do it. And it's all presented as kind of an odious thing. But nevertheless, the law seems to want to triumph in the end, the same way kind of order wants to triumph at the end of the story. So those are some of the major themes of, of Arthur Mervyn as I see it. Again, um, a fun novel, um, tough to get into, I think. Maybe not for everyone's cup of tea, but um, if you're interested in early America and some of the political debates and the, the, the tensions in that world, I think it's, it's worth checking out. So um, that's it. That's, that'll, be, that'll complete my coverage of, of Arthur Mervyn. Thank you for sticking with me through these four episodes and, and uh, taking in my thoughts on this, this story. In the next episode, I will continue on with Charles Brockton Brown. The third novel in this series will be Edgar Huntley. This is the novel about um, sleepwalking. I think maybe you've read Charles Brockton Brown's short story on somnambulism.
um, that is the kind of the nugget that this novel um, this novel is based on. So I'm looking forward to sharing my thoughts on Edgar, Edgar Huntley. So unlike with um, Arthur Mervyn and Whelan, there's no LibriVox recording of Edgar Huntley. So it's yeah, I haven't much said much about the audiobooks that I use. Usually, I'm listening to audiobooks when I when I read these books, but you know, I won't I won't be able to for for Edward Huntley. It seems. So um, that does it. So thanks for listening. If you have your own thoughts about Arthur Mervyn, please leave them below or send me an email at hundredpagescast at gmail .com. and I'll see you next time with part one of my thoughts on Edgar Huntley.